You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Well, please stand with me as we turn to Psalm 40 and read God's word together. Also have it projected there on the screen for you. Hear the living word of Christ, Psalm chapter 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the living word of God. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, believing and obeying of his word. Well, the main point of the sermon this morning 
is that the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the main point of the sermon. And that's the main point of Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Jesus Christ and his person and work is central, is supreme. And this is true, not just, again, of the New Testament, but also of the Old Testament. And that's even true in Psalm 40. And this is our first point this morning, the supreme subject of Scripture. Jesus Christ is the supreme, primary subject of scripture. Look at verse 7 with me. Psalm 40 verse 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. The words for scroll and book here, are used all over the Old Testament for the three different sections of the Old Testament. It is the God-breathed, inerrant, infallible, perfect words of the triune God, the scriptures. And consider how God in his wisdom commanded for his people to write down his words in a scroll, in a book, to preserve them so that they might be proclaimed so that they might be believed and obeyed and fulfilled scroll and book are used for the first person the first part of the old testament scriptures this is the torah genesis through deuteronomy also called the law of moses scroll and book are used for the next portion of the hebrew scriptures called the prophets the nevaim In the Hebrew scriptures, this is Joshua to Malachi. And scroll and book are used for the third part of the Old Testament, the writings, the kitavim. And this is the part of the scriptures that are the poetry and wisdom section comprised mostly of the Psalms. So the one speaking here in Psalm 40 is claiming that the scroll of the book is the source where it is written of me. Of me can be translated about me. In the scroll of the book, it's written about me. So let's ask the question, who is the me speaking here? Well, yes, we see in the superscription in the introduction that's a part of the psalm, it's a psalm of David. So the me is the inspired psalmist, King David, moved by the Holy Spirit to write these words. But we know that David is speaking prophetically. That it's ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ speaking through David. How do we know? For the Bible tells me so. Hebrews chapter 10 actually quotes Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8 and says it's Jesus talking. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, 5 through 7. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offering and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, behold, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll of the book. 
I have come to do your will, oh my God. So the inspired writer of Hebrews interprets the I have come in Psalm 40 verse 7 as Jesus speaking in his first coming. He says that the I is Christ. How does he do that? Why does he do that? I thought Psalm 40 says it's David speaking. Well, there's several answers. For one, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. God's word interprets itself. Also, the human author of the psalm, David, his entire life is a type of Christ. Ezekiel, prophesying the coming of Christ, after David is in the grave, says, David's coming. David, he'll be your shepherd. He'll be your king. So was David lying when he wrote Psalm 40? And when David said, I have come in the scroll of the book, it's written about me, David. Is David the liar then, not the writer of Hebrews? No. Because in the scroll of the book of Moses, it was written about David. Genesis 17, God promises that through Abraham, kings will come. Kings will come through him. As the first human king, Adam, sinned and became enslaved to the rule and reign of the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, Satan, God didn't stop his plan of his kingdom. He promised a new Adam king. And it would come through the line of Abraham. Through you will come kings. This promise gets unpacked further in Genesis 49. When grandson of Abraham, Jacob, lines up his 12 sons, skips over the first three, Judah. The king's scepter will not depart from you, Judah. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and following. The Lord says, when you come into the land of promise, don't ask yourself for a king like the nations. This is the kind of king you must choose for yourself. The king that the Lord chooses for you. And it goes on to speak about his character. He will keep the scroll of the book, the law, near him that he might fear the Lord in humility and reverence. And so this is David. Genesis, Deuteronomy, we're speaking about David. Partially. In seed form. See, the scroll of the book is promising that an offspring will come from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And this offspring promise comes through Eve to Abraham. Genesis 22, the offspring of Abraham will bless all nations. Second Samuel 7, the offspring promise comes to David. His offspring will sit on his throne and build God's temple kingdom. And so that means that the promises come to David, but through David and beyond David to his great, great grandson, son of David, son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So what the speaker of the psalm is saying is the subject of the scriptures is me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not me, Timothy Brindle, not you. Well-intended Christian who loves to wake up in the word each morning. I have good news for you. The Bible is not about you. 
That's not bad news. That's good news. The primary subject of the New and Old Testaments is Jesus Christ. In the scroll of the book, it is written about Christ. Well, thank you very much, Timothy. That's helpful to hear for the hundredth time in my life. Um, That's just some of the parts of the Bible, certain passages, right? Well, we should ask the author of the scriptures himself, Jesus Christ, to tell us. And he does in Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. And remember, we established the words scroll and book are used for all three sections of the Old Testament. Jesus says, Luke 24, 44, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me must be fulfilled in the law of Moses, that's the first section, and the prophets, second section, and the Psalms, shorthand for the writings. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus, in this way, in this manner, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This phrase written about me is found verbatim in Psalm 40 in the Greek Old Testament. This is the manner that the scriptures are written about the sufferings of Christ and his glories to follow. Brothers and sisters, this means that all of the sections, all of the salvation events, all of the anointed offices of prophet, priest, and king, the entire sacrificial system, the entire priesthood, the entire temple, all of the laws, all of the Psalms, they're all supremely about Christ, pointing forward to Christ and exist for him to fulfill. And Jesus says elsewhere in Luke 24 that if you miss that, you are foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And this brings into view another reason why the writer of Hebrews can say that it's Jesus speaking in Psalm 40. When the human writer says the scroll of the book is written about me. Because Jesus Christ is not only Jesus of Nazareth, the man Christ Jesus, he's God the Son. The triune God wrote the Bible. Just as Father, Son, and Spirit were present at creation to create all things out of nothing, Jesus is the author of the Old Testament. He's not only the supreme subject of Scripture that the Scriptures are talking about, he's the supreme speaker of Scripture. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Did you hear that? who was moving the prophets, who was moving David, the spirit of Christ. 
the second and third persons of the Trinity are equally active in authoring the scriptures. You may have gone to a Christian bookstore before to get a Bible and you saw the different options and, okay, KJV, ESV, okay, ESV, ooh, red letter edition. Oh, all of the words of Jesus in red. Guess what? We already have a red letter edition. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation twenty two twenty one. And notice what the spirit of Christ was in the prophets predicting the sufferings of Christ. That's the entire time from his incarnation when God the son was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, born through his own creature's uterus, was persecuted at his birth, lived an entirely obedient, perfect life, obeyed in the wilderness, went to the cross, suffered, was crucified, dead and buried. That's the sufferings of Christ. And the glories to follow, the subsequent glories, which began when? At the resurrection. His being seen by more than 500 brothers, his ascension to heaven, his sitting down at the right hand of the Father as the king of the universe, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit, his interceding for his church, his present rule and reign now in his second coming, the judgment of the world and creating a new heavens and new earth. That's the subsequent glories. And that's what the Old Testament is about. And that's our second point. On its own terms, the Old Testament, even Psalm 40 in particular, is about the supremacy of Christ's suffering and glory. Suffering and glory, shorthand for death and resurrection. These are the two estates of Christ that the Westminster divines who wrote the Westminster Confession used to talk about Messiah's two periods of his ministry in his earthly life. His suffering is also called his humiliation, his estate of humiliation. His glory is his estate of exaltation. So listen to the Westminster larger catechisms. Explain. Question 46. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation or suffering was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon the form of a servant in his conception and birth, his life and death, and after his death, up until his resurrection. Question 51. What was the estate of Christ's exaltation or glory? The estate of Christ's exaltation consists of his resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and his coming again to judge the world. And this pattern of suffering and glory is first established in the Old Testament. This blueprint was laid out for Jesus to fulfill, in which God's servants... His anointed ones, according to Psalm 105, verse 15, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph are his anointed ones, his Mashiachs, his Messiahs, his Christs of that redemptive era in which they'd be afflicted. They'd endure trial or exile. And then as they trusted the Lord, be raised up out of it, be glorified and delivered. This is the pattern for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the pattern for David. David, whose name means beloved. 
the anointed of the Lord, whom the Spirit rushed upon at his anointing. The shepherd king from the town of Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, after being anointed king, was driven out in exile into the wilderness and was persecuted and suffered and wrote Psalm 40 as he trusted the Lord to raise him up out and deliver him. A blueprint for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was our introduction. And now we're ready to actually begin the sermon. So I'd like to point your attention to verse 1. Just kidding. It was not just the introduction. I, I do that every night at family worship with my kids. After a 40-minute intro. All right, guys. Now it's time to start the Bible study. But notice that Psalm 40 opens and closes with these themes of the psalmist talking about his suffering in his afflictions, we see that in the first two verses. And in the last verse, he relies upon the Lord to faithfully deliver him or rescue him. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. When he says, I waited patiently, he means I'm waiting with hopeful expectation, believing that God's promise will deliver me. We find the same word in Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? Because with the Lord there is steadfast love, covenant love. Faithfulness to God's covenant promises. And with him is plentiful, abundant redemption, abundant rescue. So David, in his afflictions and sufferings, is referring to his enemies. It's often Saul persecuting him, or even his own son Absalom at times. But his enemies are mentioned in verses 14 and 15. They're those who seek to snatch away his life, who delight in his hurt, who mock and revile him. Aha, aha. And yet, David relies upon the Lord. In verse 17, he says, I am poor, meaning I'm afflicted. I'm needy, but it's the Lord who takes thought for me. And I want to talk now about the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice I said the faith of Christ, not faith in Christ, which is crucial. But do we often think about the faith of the man, Jesus? Jesus prayed, sung, and lived the Psalms. They were the narrative for his life of suffering and glory. And so when his afflictions and sufferings, he waited patiently, very patiently, with hopeful expectation that the Father would raise him up out of his sufferings. Because God promised to do so. In his covenant with David, he promised that one of David's sons would sit on his throne forever. And dead people don't sit on thrones. Resurrected kings do. The resurrected king. And so he trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord to raise him up. And we see this resurrection imagery in verse 2. Notice verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He drew me up means he caused me to be raised up. From where? From the pit of destruction, which is the miry bog. Then he set my feet upon a rock. 
the Lord based on the promises of his word is an unchanging, firm, reliable rock who rescues his servants from the pit. Can you think of any other prophets whom the Lord rescued from the pit? How about Joseph, Genesis 37, 24, the same word for pit used there. Jeremiah also in 38, 6 of the prophet's book. How about Jesus though? Was Jesus ever in a pit? Well, notice, yes, he was actually. Pit is in tandem with Sheol in many of David's Psalms. Psalm 30 verse three says, oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. That is the grave. You have restored my life from those who go down to the pit. In short, David is likening the Lord's rescue of him as being like resurrection from death. A second exodus. A second exodus, how so? Well, in Psalm 40, verse 2, pit of destruction is parallel with miry bog. You may have discussed Hebrew parallelism, how in Hebrew poetry, one thing is said and it's often unpacked in the next line. That's a very helpful way to, for us to interpret and make better sense of every psalm. So the pit of destruction is the miry bog and it's further explained sense. What's a miry bog? My kid said it sounds like a Ninjago bad guy. Miry bog. But a miry bog is a muddy mire. It's a pit of mud from floodwaters. Psalm 69 is helpful. Where David uses the same language to refer to the floodwaters of death. Used to describe his sufferings. Listen to Psalm 69. It uses the same words for pit, mire, and bog. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies, that is, from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Don't let the pit close its mouth over me. So David, as an Israelite, who has Genesis and Exodus, who has read the stories of the flood and the Exodus, he describes the Lord's deliverance with flood imagery and being rescued from the waters of death, the waters of judgment, which at the flood and the Exodus destroyed the wicked while God's people passed through safely on dry ground. Thus we can conclude that the pit David's talking about in Psalm 40 is likened unto a watery grave from the floodwaters of judgment. So how would Jesus Christ have prayed this? How would he have interpreted this? If it's his narrative, his life story. Our Lord Jesus himself is the one who suffered the ultimate flood of the wrath of God on the cross. Greater than the waters of judgment. It was raised up in resurrection life. And the father set his feet upon a rock and he was exalted into glory. He is the blessed man of verse four who perfectly every day, every second of his life trusted in his heavenly father, the Lord who raised him up faithfully.
So I want to ask you, have you ever been in a pit? Have you ever likened your life unto a pit? I've been in many pits. In fact, the scriptures are clear enslavement to sin is a deep pit. If you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if you're not trusting and relying upon him, the scripture says you exist in a pit, in a grave, a spiritual grave. You're dead in your sins. And you're headed for the lake of fire. What the waters of judgment were pointing forward to. But God, Zechariah 9-11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Because of the blood of the covenant, he sets prisoners of sin free from the pit of destruction in, in union with Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you're connected, you're united to Christ, and you're raised up together with Christ. And his resurrection is your resurrection both now spiritually and when he comes back physically in a resurrected body. And this brings us to our third point. When you're rescued up out of the pit, how should you respond? With worship, with song, a song of praise, a song of salvation. The supremacy of his song. That's our third point. The supremacy of Christ's song. Look at verse three with me. Then, as a result of me being delivered out of the pit of destruction from that grave, he put a new song in my mouth, which is described as a song of praise to our God. Now, this new song is not what Tim Brindle does when he writes rhymes. This is not what the Gettys do when they write in Christ alone, as glorious as those songs are. This new song is a song that God put in his mouth. It's an inspired song by the Spirit. And this new song is a prophetic song, but it's a song about God's saving acts in redemptive history. How can we tell? Because notice that this new song in verse 3 is described again as the things that David is singing about in verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds. Those are God's miraculous works of salvation and judgment. And throughout the scriptures, when someone sings a new song, it's because God has entered into history to do a new act of salvation. Psalm 98.1 is helpful. It has the new song with the wondrous deeds. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song because he has done marvelous things. Same word for wondrous deeds. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. So when the Lord enters into history to save, just as he promised, his people respond with a new song, an inspired song that interprets his acts of salvation. And so we find the Israelites at the Exodus singing a song to the Lord about his wondrous, miraculous deeds. And it's a song of praise. Exodus 15, one says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, 
I will sing to the Lord because he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, miraculous works of salvation? Likewise, at the Exodus, the Israelites saw God's mighty, miraculous works of salvation, and they feared with trembling reverence and joyful awe, and they believed upon the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Like Moses, David is a wordsmith, a poet, dare I say a lyricist, who's using rhyming words in Hebrew Saw is the word ra'ah, feared, yara, and then trusted and sung a song of praise. And we, lo and behold, we find that in Psalm 40, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth. Many will see ra'ah in fear, yara, and put their trust in the Lord. Same thing from Exodus 14 and 15. Why? Because it's a new Exodus. The Lord rescued me. He entered into redemptive history and delivered me from my enemies. And yet the new song, the song of praise of God's miraculous works of salvation and redemptive history finds its culmination in the birth, in the life, in the suffering death, in the resurrection, in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the subject of the songs of salvation. And get this. He's the singer. Jesus is the singer. This is what Hebrews 2.11 says, quoting Psalm 22.22. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, Father, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. As our great worship leader. Because our songs. Coming from these sinful hearts. Are a stench to the living God. Unless they're filtered. Unless they're mediated. Through the resurrected high priest Jesus Christ. The ultimate worship leader. Is the Lord Jesus. In the midst of his great congregation. So Jesus is both the human priestly singer of the Psalms who leads us in worship before the Father, but he's also the divine author of the Psalms. So therefore, how many messianic Psalms are there? Well, how many Psalms are there? 150. There's 150 messianic Psalms. They're the Psalms of Christ. And through those songs, he preaches the gospel of his salvation to his great congregation. And that's our fourth point. The supremacy of his salvation. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. 
I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Great congregation. Twice there. The songs of Christ are gospel proclaiming songs. We see this in verse 9. I've told the glad news of deliverance. The I speaking here is Christ. And what's his message to the congregation? I've told the glad news of deliverance. And you have a helpful footnote in your ESV. The word there for deliverance, this word, sadak, righteousness. Now why the ESV translators chose to translate it deliverance, it's helpful, it's wise, because it's a delivering, saving righteousness that rescues from death and condemnation. But this verb here, to tell the glad news, is the word that Isaiah uses over and over again, to tell the good news, to preach the gospel. In the Greek Old Testament, the root of this verb is where we get evangel, evangelist. I have preached the gospel of righteousness, literally, in the great congregation. Jesus, the promised prophet, lived this psalm, going about in his earthly ministry, proclaiming the gospel of free righteousness, the glad news, the promise that he gives us his perfect life credit, his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness born by him on the cross. But Jesus, the resurrected prophet, priest, king, proclaims the gospel of righteousness through the apostles in the New Testament. And get this, every Sunday at Roots Church, through the preaching of the word, It's the resurrected Christ empowering his servant by his spirit to proclaim, to preach the glad news, the good news of righteousness. In where? The great congregation. This word great here is the same word used for many in verse 3, where many will see and fear. It's referring to great in number. It's the same word used in verse 5 for being multiplied. But it's a great congregation. Congregation. The Hebrew Bible, kahal, is translated in the Greek Old Testament, ekklesia, church. Jesus didn't have some brand new great idea when he says he's come to build his church. No, the church has existed since the first telling of the gospel. In fact, we find these words great or many or multiplied in congregation earlier in the scriptures in Genesis 28 verse 3. God speaking to Jacob, God almighty bless you and make you fruitful and make you great, multiply you. Same word for great. So that you may become a congregation, a church of peoples. Genesis 35, 11, God said to him, I'm God almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a congregation of nations, a church of Gentiles, 
a nation, Israel, and along with that, a congregation of nations. The great congregation is every single person before and after the cross who put their faith in the coming Messiah or the Messiah who has come and is coming again. It's Jesus Christ's one Jew, Gentile, great congregation. There's one house of God. Hebrews 3, 5 and 6 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify, to bear witness to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house. Same thing that Moses was faithful in. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If we hold fast our confession, our boasting and our hope. The great congregation is the recipient of this glorious salvation. And notice the salvation words in verse 10 that Jesus proclaims to his church. His deliverance, his righteousness is, is also related to his covenant faithfulness, his salvation. Then again, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness go together in scripture like peanut butter and jelly. It's God's loyalty and commitment to his oath and promise to be God to his people and for them to be his people. But the Lord Jesus not only proclaims this salvation, he first accomplished it. Jesus applies this salvation to us by the spirit, but first he had to experience it himself. Heresy. Jesus had to be saved. Well, listen to the book of Hebrews chapter five, verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. I wonder what prayers those were. Psalms. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus' salvation was his resurrection. Not as a sinner, but as a representative of those who he died and was raised on behalf of. And so in this way, all of the covenant promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Galatians 3.16 says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring who is Christ. So in this sense, Christ is the recipient of the steadfast love, of the faithfulness, of the mercy in verse 9. And in verse 11, look at the restrained wordplay there. Just as the psalmist has not restrained his lips from preaching the gospel in verse 9, so he trusts the Lord will not restrain his mercies, his compassions from him, which are unpacked as God's steadfast love. 
And so Christ is the receptacle. He's the storage bin, the archive. He's the great receiver, the benefactor of all the blessings of salvation. And they're yours by faith in Christ. In his death and resurrection, Jesus experiences salvation first on our behalf, not as a sinner, but as a substitute, the righteous one suffering for the unrighteous. And this is our final point. Yes, five points. What do you know? Just so happened to be five points this morning. The supremacy of his sacrifice, the supremacy of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice in verses six to eight. Look at verse six with me. And notice the parallel phrases. In sacrifice, in offering, you have not delighted. That's the top bun. But notice the bottom bun. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So sacrifice and offering are parallel to burnt offering and sin offering. You have not delighted is parallel to you have not required. That raises a question. I thought God did require these sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Yes, he did require them. What's meant here by not required can be translated not desired. That's why it's parallel with not delighted in. Well, God, why don't you delight in these sacrifices of lambs and bulls and goats that you prescribe, Lord. Have you made a contradiction in your word, God? No. There's wordplay again that's helpful. What does the Lord delight in? Sacrifice and offering you have not delighted in. Rather, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. God delights in heart-based obedience to his will, conform to his law. This brings into view 1 Samuel 15, 22, where Samuel says to Saul, does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he delights in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. So what the Lord delights in is for his people to listen to him and obey him. Wow, what's sandwiched in the middle? What's the meat in the middle in verse 6? In between those two parallel phrases. But you have given me an open ear. Literally, an ear you've prepared for me. So in sacrifice, in burnt offering, Lord, you don't delight in it. And in burnt offering and sin offering, you don't desire it. But you've given me an open ear. That's the key. That's the clue. Why an open ear? Well, what do you do with your ear? You hear 
And in Hebrew, you hear, you shema, you obey, you submit, you listen to God's word. Ding! What the Lord wanted all along to go along with the sacrifice was a heart of love for God. That the one offering up the sacrifice was motivated by a pure heart of love and worship to the Lord. That's what Cain and Abel was about. The sacrifice and offering was always meant to be an outward manifestation of the heart. And brothers and sisters, this is what made Jesus Christ's sacrifice perfect and infinitely pleasing to the Father. This is what made him offering up his entire body effective to save you. And so the writer of Hebrews takes the part that stands for the whole. He takes the ear, you've given me an open ear, you've prepared an ear for me. And he translates it as, interprets it as, you've prepared a body for me. Because it's through my body that I will submit and obey and listen. This is parallel with Isaiah chapter 50 where the servant of the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, referring to this open ear that the Lord has given him. He's obedient and submissive to the father's will, even to the point of death. Listen to Isaiah chapter 50, verse five. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace in spitting. It's the obedient heart of Christ that makes his sacrifice so precious to the father. And that's why our starting point was Psalm 40 verse seven. Then... Then I said, well, what's before the then that God doesn't delight in the old Testament sacrificial system as being able to take away sin. Then as a result, I said, behold, check it out. Pay attention. I have come. Only Christ's heart of love for the father offered up on our behalf, bearing our wickedness and sin, suffering the infinite wrath of the father could make God happy with you and me. I delight to do your will. May the father delighted in you and I. And so Jesus is able to completely abolish and do away with and fulfill the old Testament sacrifice where the priest becomes the sacrifice. But Pastor Timothy, you miss verse 12. If this is Jesus talking in all of Psalm 40, why does Psalm 12 say, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. Ha, gotcha, Timothy. That's not Jesus talking because Jesus doesn't have sin. That's just David. Your thesis is... It's not working here. Good news. 
Jesus came and lived and prayed Psalm 40, including verse 12, because you and I don't even know how to repent right. He showed up at the baptism of repentance. Not as a sinner, but as a representative, as one who would identify with my iniquities. So when Jesus would read Psalm 40 verse 12 about my iniquities overtaking me, he knew he had no sin of his own, but he identified my iniquities as if he did it. So I could identify his righteousness as if I did it. And I want to encourage you, brother and sister, this morning, that when you feel overwhelmed with your sins, when you can pray, verse 12, as a confessing, repentant sinner, that evils have encompassed you beyond number. Know that these words, encompassing beyond number, are found in verse 5, for God's wondrous deeds that he's worked that are beyond number. And so when your innumerable sin debt squared off at the cross with God's innumerable acts of mercy. Who won? The Lord Jesus Christ, the embodiment of the mercy of God himself took your innumerable sins. You can't count them all. He can and he did when the father counted them on him so that he could count his righteousness on you by faith in Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is what we will sing about forever. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the main attraction, the center of attention. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, in all of history for all eternity, we'll sing of his suffering, his glory. We'll sing the songs of his salvation. We'll sing of his sacrifice as the lamb who was slain stands before us as the resurrected king. And we'll sing of his abundant mercies forever. Revelation 5 in closing. And when the lamb had taken the scroll, they, that's you and I, sang a new song. Saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain and by your blood. You redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Hallelujah.